This is the Mail and Guardian. Hello listeners, this is the third installment of The Fiscal Cliff, a Mail and Guardian podcast series about the state of South Africa's public purse and how the government's efforts to rein in spending have resulted in a long period of austerity eroding public services. My name is Sarah Smith, and today I am joined by my boss, the Mail and Guardian's editor-in-chief, Ron Derby. Ron, welcome back. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. In this episode, I thought we'd talk a bit about the political tightrope the Treasury is walking as we approach what looks to be a rough election for the governing ANC. This, as Finance Minister Enoch Gordon is set to table his medium-term budget policy statement in the coming days. When Gordon Guano was appointed to take over from Tito Mboweni, investors welcomed the fact that he had considerable influence within the ANC. Ron, I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are on Mboweni's stint as finance minister and whether you think Gordon Guano has managed to build a bridge between the Treasury's technocrats and the ANC. Yeah, thanks for this. With regards to okay, Mboweni, how long was it? Was it about four years, right? Or 2018 when he came in. Mboweni was a reluctant uh, returnee to public service. I was very clear when uh, Ramaphosa went and fetched him from where is he in, in, in Zanin, basically, and fetched him to bring him back into service, that he was not most keen to come back into this thing. Was he? We've been with, uh, I think Mboweni had lost lots of faith with the functioning of the state and even with the new ANC as it, as it was. So, But in returning, it was, you know, the thing I like about Mboweni was kind of purposefully going to be rather blunt when it came to his boss, Ramaphosa at the time, and the ANC, and the, the fiscal situation the country was in. So he was, was an interesting minister in that regard, just laying it thick of just what the problems are the country's currently facing. The, beyond, I mean, he's all about fiscal policy, but in his tenure, there was an economic plan that he, within his own department, within the own department, dropped about the country, so without speaking to anyone. They just released that from internally, no consultation. So I think it was a very much what would I call it, like a, a rogue finance minister in a sense, coming into a country in deep trouble. But I think when he came in, the whole idea was, oh, save us from going into junk ratings. He had about just under a year to come tell global markets that South Africa's will be fiscally disciplined, conservative as we always were, and, and get back that the trust from global markets as it were. And he was never going to get there. I mean, the, the ship had sailed. We were going to go into junk rating, but he tried as hard as possible to rein in that's been dealt with. There was a public service. He was, he was the one who actually went back on, on government's commitments when it comes to, to to pay for public servants. And that was his role. And I, I think when he walked in, he's like, look, I've got no future in the ANC. I'm not going for any presidency. I'm not going for I've got no ambitions, grand ambitions within the party itself. I'm here. I'm going to tell it like it is. And that's exactly how he wrote it. And Anyone would listen, he'd tell everyone that I'm old, I shouldn't be here, there should be younger people in this in, in my place. And that was the role he played and throughout his uh, finance. And so then he, maybe we, we needed that, some bluntness in how he dealt with it, but also the party. So the, the last question he asks about the gap, bridging the gap between Treasury, Treasury technocrats and the ANC, it, it wasn't a game that he was interested in playing at all. And I think he, when Enoch came in, Enoch uh, eventually came back in, he was supposedly going to be that, like, to bridge that gap, as you asked in your question, between the, the technocrats in Treasury and the ANC, which was a difficult job. Which I think is always, there's always been this divide between those two, uh, especially over the past 
Yeah, actually, since forever, since yeah, since two thousand and nine, since there was a surplus, and and they then then okay, now we have a surplus. So the how the state went about spending that money was always, I think, it caused a huge rift between Treasury and the ANC. Yeah, I mean, thinking now as you're talking, Moeni left shortly after the July riots, which saw the Treasury kind of allocating money towards the social grant. And in came Enoch Guadongwana, who was... He was seen simultaneously as being investor-friendly and kind of ANC-friendly, which I suppose in a way was kind of a good move, kind of looking back on it, considering that now Gorongwana kind of has to walk the kind of thinnest tightrope that finance minister has in a, in a very long time. I don't know if Tito would have been up to the challenge to do it now, yeah, it's a good question. Because Enoch's a political player, I suppose he's okay to go to NEC meetings and or the, or, all these and speak to the ANC and get his peers across the line as a word, understanding where Treasury comes from. The one thing with Boyd had no interest, no patience for it. And it, it did come across rather arrogant, I guess, to many, actually to many within the party that he was kind of, had this arrogance, which also feeds into this whole narrative about Treasury versus an ill-disciplined ANC, so he fed this, uh, into that. But even so, Enoch has come in there, and I don't, I don't know whether it's within those hallways of a Treasury that there's some harsh fiscal realities, and if you're dealing with fiscal policy, fiscal rules of the game, and how you play it, there's some realities that Enoch has knows now, and he knows that outside of the ANC, this is a particular language he has to speak, and that's what he's done, right? It's almost, they all get wired into a particular position. Whenever he walked into Pretoria and, and took on that job, you know, he's pretty much sounded the same alarms that Mboini has sounded. Maybe it has sounded better within the ANC uh, compared to what Mboini basically, you could see that. I don't find it, maybe I won't call it arrogance. I just, his confidence and big speaking and maybe uh, jaded, I think, came back in. So someone maybe you shouldn't have been finest miss and he did tell us he, I shouldn't be here, but I think he was had, he was kind of jaded in a sense and disappointed about where the country has been. I know almost what happened to him after uh, he served as Reserve Bank Governor. So he, that's what the negatives of what Mboweni came to when he came to the ANC. But there were some things he said were true and have remained the case. He was the first, I think, called into question the strength of Ramaphosa's leadership. If you were think about it, any finance minister is only as strong as your president. That's, yeah, you can, no matter how great you are as a finance minister, your position in the, in government is about your president. Get a strong president who knows how to back you and clear, and then you're given the space and room to actually go ahead and do your job. The best partnership in that sense was a Tabo and Becky Trevor Manuel partnership. I mean, everyone talks about in market terms how glowingly they speak of Trevor Manuel, but Manuel was only allowed that space to be the longest serving finance ministers because they had a very strong Becky ready to fight in the ANC and defend the, the turf, and so uh, Ben was pretty much left. No one really could, could take on a Trevor Manuel, but uh, under Ramaphosa, any of his finance ministers, like any of his ministers are subject to high scrutiny, and and so sometimes they, they need the, the protection of the, of the number one. Jacob Zuma, Zuma would protect you if you were in his camp, but once you disagreed with you, also kind of left you exposed. And I think that's one thing that all the, all the finance ministers since Zuma and I guess Ramaphosa 
have kind of felt exposed in this ANC. But I don't know, Sarah. I don't know. The ANC knows they're losing power. Electorally, they know where they're heading. This it's all electorally. And so, if you're sitting there as president or anyone else, you are worried about this. And the tendency then that the attraction needs to be more populist in what you say, right? Is that, because you know you don't want to sell. Okay, we need another. There's a hard yards ahead before we recover. Because when when you're at this position, you just know it's about staying in power. And I think that's also the the struggle that any finance minister has, right? This is me being sympathetic to the implied. Not understanding that you and I agree. There's some things about fiscal policy that maybe we should test, and some thinking that should be tested with the with Treasury. Uh, never mind the constraints the market brings. But there is something that, and right now, I think the ANC is very much in that. How far do we chase populism, and in, in, to ensure we in power next year? And that puts pressure then on on a finance minister. Yeah, I'm just. You got me thinking. The first time that I heard Gordongwana's name was actually at the State Capture Commission. He wasn't implicated. <laughs> but I think it was Lungisa Fuzila was there talking about his time as DG. And he, it must have been when Des Van Ryan came in, he got a phone call from Enoch to say, I hear you're getting Gupta Minister. I'm interested in that kind of role of the DG. We've spoken about it a couple of times because you have the president, but and then you have the minister who's kind of there to back what the DG does. Um, that's the person that's in the treasury and who should be actually running things. I'm just wondering what your views are on the role of DGs in these ministries and whether we've had the right amount of stability over the years. I mean, notwithstanding kind of the former DG who now finds himself at the Moti Group. Oh, embarrassing. Uh, no. It's embarrassing, but also maybe it's a, it's sad the limited options someone like him had when he was looking to leave public service. Maybe it's a comment and comments for another day. But yeah, the DGs are essentially the CEOs of, of these departments, and I think very much under Jacob Zuma's term, I hate like going reverting back to it. That is when the politicians kind of played this executive chairman roles as, as ministers, and really got their hands dirty with the functionings of the, these departments. And where the money flowing, and got and in all the most corrupted departments anyway, at least, and that has almost been the blurring of the the governance line. So, being a DG must be the one of the hardest jobs in this country, next to, of course, we know jokingly any SOE CEO. But within Treasury, I mean, Lugisa was one of the last strong DG. After him came in Dondo, who, I mean, internally they knew his uh, the merits of him, but externally, I guess there wasn't that he didn't carry the same sway that former DGs of the finance ministry had. So immediately there, Boeni's lack of, when Boeni was sitting in, in Zanin running the treasury, right, there was a problem with that when the finance minister sitting there. And that there was, there was a break, I think within finance ministry, there was lots of unhappiness with an absent minister in a sense, who was sitting there tweeting away and pulchids and all and like that. And having a weak DG, not say weak, not as, I don't, I don't want to discredit him as, as such, but not a strong DG in the same mode of Lese Chakanyako, Lungisa, Maria Ramos. So there was something that made us all a bit uncertain with the running of the finance ministry. Now we have a new DG, uh, I forget his name now. But similarly, they don't carry as much sway as they did in their previous governance of, of Tabon Baker's era, where a DG, I think, is the most important position in government. But however, it's one of the positions where we haven't done ourselves done very well in attracting and retaining the best 
in the country. Most of the strong ones have left. Who's the new generation, the new treasure uh, finance DJ? I don't know how well he stands up against all the pressures, but we, we sure hope. I mean, he is from the school of Lungisa and Lisechi and so on. Let's hope he has the strength to stand up in this and lead these these departments and not this thing of this over this fiddling ministers is a real problem in this country, and that's where the lines get blurred between ANC and the state. It's when our ministers get too too powerful in said course, and that has happened across the board over the past 15 odd years of these super powerful ministers. As you say, the, the DGs are kind of the buffer between the kind of political exercise and the state building exercise. And Duncan Peterson, who's the new DG, I mean, he certainly gives a good impression and time will tell. Um, but I mean, he isn't, also, he isn't the kind of personality as far as I've seen as some of the previous DGs that you've mentioned. I'd love for Duncan to have a bigger profile. We're doing interviews to take it to take the helm. I think mean, we need that. We can't have these politicians, and we need like so. Duncan in my book, if I was advising him in any sense, I'd be talking and giving and defending where the where Treasury sits now, and almost give confidence not only externally but internally to the, to the staff within within Treasury that you have DG on the front foot. But, but this is ultimately the most important uh, department in government. And we'll really need to see him speaking for. And that would almost, in the sense, I, I think also buy, you know, some space, breathing room as well, having a strong DG representing, right? And I think that's what's, what's really lacking within the state is having, let's see these technocrats, right? These, and there are some bloody brilliant technocrats, but all their work is overshadowed by the fact that all these ministers who are playing their own political games and then almost leaves us with a lack of confidence. I'm certain Duncan is excellent and we probably give some sense of confidence to you and I sitting here in the market if he's out there defending their positions and where they are fiscally. But no, uh, I, I remember when there's a minister, I always I pick on him. Jesus, he probably hates me. It's fine if he goes through everything I've said. But there was a minister, Gikaba, right? It's the first time I saw ministers being a real problem. Uh, going to the uh, opening of parliament, being in the year in his heyday with Jacob Zuma. And he was wearing an SAA pilot's uniform and he's all like brigaded out and like today I was like this is Paul Mess. I, I wondered then watching him so I wonder how much he fiddles with SAA and the more that as time went on he wanted to know everything that is flowing through SAA at that time like every appointment what's going on that is the period when these super ministries abusing their powers and, and levels of influence on DGs and by extension whatever they the, the companies were within their departments. I think that, that we haven't quite nipped that in the bud. We simply haven't. And until we nip that in the bud and, and give the DGs, the technocrats, the space to lead and back them, uh, we're always going to be in this wonky position. Let's talk a bit about government's defense of the, its fiscal policy and its fiscal position. When we did our first episode of this podcast, I think it was shortly afterwards, and I'm not saying that it's connected, but shortly afterwards, there were a lot of media reports about the state's current fiscal position. A lot of it quite dramatic. I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on the way that this fiscal crisis, in inverted commas, has been communicated to us as the public? As it always has been, I think we all are a bit... As, so I think when Treasury deal with the leaks and all the stuff came out about the 350 Ryan grant and like, like that, it was just to create some anxiety about the state of the country is in. So whatever change is coming to play, 
I mean, now that the medium term budget speech and, and next year at the actual budget, we're almost preparing ourselves for, I think, for a hard discussion with the president in particular about what the budget priorities are. I think that's exactly what they were pushing out to us. Like, look, if you want us to continue 350 rand a month, and I think, as you know, spoken, I think basic income grant is something or some form of grant is what the current administration is looking for. You're going to have to play different, you're going to play ball with us on other issues in the budget. Other cuts are going to have to come into play. So it, it, it was just to, I don't, the ANC can ill afford in any, actually any government going into an election like next year can ill afford to, redu- to, to remove that, that grant. It doesn't make any sense or the party already, there's a poll expected to, to, to come 41%. Still in hell, the ANC is going to do that cool. But I think it, it did raise alarm bells about what do we prioritize within the budget at the moment, right? And and if, so to Enoch says, if you want us to continue the deficit grant, what leeway are you giving us to make some cutbacks within the budget? Uh, and that, I and our, con- our concerns then are exactly what, where is, because Treasury will come back and say, cool, we'll carry on with this. However, here are the proposals of, of where expenditure has to be cut within the state. When our long-term fear is, when they make these cuts, we just see it like as numbers on a balance sheet, right? There's some cuts here, snips here in in these income in our books, but actually on the ground, there's, it feeds into the lack of capacity within the state. The state, and you can see it like the state slowly starts getting worse at doing the job it has to do, right? In, in terms of service delivery, so that is uh, the balancing act. But I wanted to know exactly what in that bargain between the presidency and and treasury over the next months or so. What comes out next year in, in February? And what messaging is, comes out to the market? But like I said, like, there's always two. I imagine the finance minister has two bosses. He has a president on, on one end, and he has markets or the bondholders. Those are his two bosses, and that's who he has to always play off. And to, to just look after one boss, like the presidency, that's a risk before disaster in any case. It just is a risk before disaster, and vice versa. To be like market friendly alone is also a risk before disaster. So. The best finance ministers are those that can juggle between those two and, and maintain as much as they have to play the politics online, but clearly it's a political appointment in a sense won't have an ear to what the market is saying. Because as, as we are an emerging market, small a market here that quite easily can put under a moment of stress if bondholders just don't believe any of our story. And that is what any finance minister plays with. And it's ugly, it's sad because look, the, the US if the U.S. was an, an emerging market country, they'd probably long been junk rating, right? The way they run their government and their fiscus, but unfortunately, we're not in that position. So it's always this sad, but like, there's a balancing act that has to be played between the two. And I think maybe that's back to your point. Enoch is invested in the political play. To maybe he was the better finance minister. But when he was like not invested here, he was like, I didn't care really if they fired him the next day. And he just pl- pandered to what the markets want. So they, and he could say whatever he wanted. And long as he came out, very much about fiscal discipline and almost cascading his own party. Uh, the markets kind of liked him in a sense, but they still sent John Gray ticks with the one, the first job we had to do. But to that point about our fiscal position, Treasury always before budget times leaks something or makes a big hoo-ha about our fiscus. And then all, that, all, all we all get concerned about spend the state and we almost get ourselves in a position of like an, uh, an austere position they put us in the position to almost expect and accept some levels of cuts going forward so whether they're negotiating with public sector employees whatever it may be but it's always preparing like if we're going to continue with this 350 grant either you're going to stop paying it which we know they will not do 
or you must let us reprioritize another in other areas of budget. And that's you know, that's what I think what the whole purpose of the noise was about. I guess uh, we're still in that stage of rebuilding credibility. Credibility is so important, especially if you are a small emerging market economy. If you want to do things, if you want to take up more debt, you have to have that credibility behind it so that the markets don't react adversely. And once you've built up that credibility, then from that point on, I suppose investors can start to kind of read in between the lines of the kind of double speak of the political and the fiscal talk. We've so far we have heard numerous reports of Gorongwana kind of receiving pushback from within the ANC, which I suppose to some extent is to be expected given that we are approaching an election. This isn't the first time that finance ministers have received pushback. Nsantanene, Pravin Gordon, they both received, maybe pushback isn't the right word, from then President Jacob Zuma. I suppose that that period did teach us a lot about how important the markets are. And I suppose we're still kind of learning from that period, right? What Jacob Zuma did was dice with play with credibility. Once you lose it, it is so hard, like so hard. So even if we got a pro, like a stronger progressive government and like understanding what, and get a, a sense of how they want to play with fiscal policy, even if we got the best intentions, the best men or women in those positions, Without the credibility, it's just like, oh, it's whatever. And I think markets have long memories, like elephants, right? On that, whoever advised our former president in, in December, this is the best time to go and just fire your finance minister because everyone's on holiday and the, and the Ryan won't react and just do it now and bring in this. That was the critical level. It's huge faux pas on the part of the presidency. I wouldn't say about they, they just that, like that decision and what alarm signals that sent to the world. But even up to then, even though economically we weren't doing well, Sarah, we weren't doing well heading up to 2015. Uh, there were like warning signs about other African economies, like, okay, we are in a, you know, in a, in a spot of bother. Uh, that move was, there were warning signs, the retraction of QE was really there. So people were looking at emerging markets a bit more circumspect, like more differently, right? When he did that, it was credibility loss. And that run up until his eventual ouster in 2017 18. I don't think it was the markets ever actually recovered from that. But beyond that, the further risk was COVID pandemic. So the markets are very, it's been hard for us to track back any form of that credibility that we had before. And without that credibility, you almost, you have no sort of room to play, to, to like play around. Like instead of words like uh, flexible inflation targeting, I think that's what Jill Marcus introduced into the uh, lexicon then. She could say it then because we said credibility. Now there's no way in hell Fanyahu uh, will speak that to like any flexible or looking at it differently. Marcus just wants us to I mean, stick to the rules and, and dictates of it now, which limits any ability uh, for the state to play any role in boosting our economy right now. We lost credibility, and I, I think by ANC hasn't cleaned house necessarily, so I think we're still in that, in those dark woods. In between these, the kind of our political overlords and our the market. There's the 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 public, right? And we, in a sense, have kind of vote in all of this, right? I was when I was doing my reading and research for this podcast, I I read an article by ANC stalwart Joel Nechitenze, 
who wrote an article published in the Business Day about the disquiet that the cabinet reshuffle in which Gordon was reshuffled um, caused within the governing party. And despite efforts to clean up the ANC's image, he wrote, unfortunately, as Russians put it, Bashka the cat continued eating. So I'm just wondering, I mean, do you think that the ANC has managed to rehabilitate itself in the eyes of the kind of taxpaying public post-Zuma? And um, if not, what what is the kind of impact of that? Uh, for me, one, for instance, would be this kind of slow turn towards the private sector as our kind of saviors. They haven't. The Zondo Commission was 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 an amazing, amazing piece of work done in this country uh, to examine just the functioning of the ANC and, and government. And that report came out, and so many people named. It was brave from the for the party to go through with that, right? I don't think there's any any governing party, any part of the world would would undertake a commission such as such as Zondo. But it had to, right? Where we legally we had to do, we had to go through with it. And I think at that point, I mean. The confidence and the trust that the state, as South Africans have had in the state, broke, and it hasn't managed to be recovered. But if you go back, it's, it's such a difficult thing to rebuild that trust. But how you do, how do you do it? Right? This, when Ronald Posa came in, it was all about it's a new dawn, cleaning up. But we can all see that the same agents that were there under the Zuma administration are pretty much the same agents that are still here now. It has been the shuffling of the decks and so on. But it pretty much is the same ANC that has remained. We, we, I think the citizens and Joes haven't seen that grand shakeup uh, that we, that someone we were hoping when Ramaphosa came into into the game. Ministers like Zizigoto and others who are implicated in the state capture are still there on the stage, right? So I don't think they've managed to regain the trust of the general populace, and that's and it, and like historically, state and and sovereign citizenry hasn't had a strong relationship, which is. So we will think like, no, that the, the trust and faith in the state, we haven't had it for very long. When post Nazi fall, that's when people really invested in this new government was for all of us in any case. It's a very new concept that all of us feel invested in this government. And uh, the crack that came with the, with the Zuma administration uh, almost sent us back into a, a world where, I mean, some academics were talking about and the past idea has been better, which is all very scary stuff. People are talking that type of nonsense. And the economists put out something where in South Africa, 77% of our people are looking, you know, and, and looking at maybe a dictator being a better way forward for the country. Like, that's all things that show that the breakdown in trust between the public and, and government, uh, if at all it is that. But I'm sure that 77%, 77% is from the upper middle classes. I, I, don't, I don't think anyone wants to return to any something, any semblance, but yeah, maybe, maybe I'm just being too, too hopeful in that sense. Anyway, so so there is a breakdown. It has, it ha- they haven't managed to rebuild that tr- that faith and trust in us. I think there was a when COVID was happening, the pandemic. Initially, I was quite impressed with that by all of us and those family meetings and how the the whole country worked with the state and we listened. By and large, the majority like oh, there was some leadership and we saw leadership even. As William Keyes at that point, I was like, wow, this guy had his sort of building his political career. And then the exact same character gets mired into corruption. So all those little green shoots of like of hope, they into themselves themselves in the foot to take us right back to where we are now. And I guess the load shedding, that also is it's confidence happening. Try as you may to get around that. And everyone will put that blame directly onto the party itself. So no, they haven't. <laughs> and that's 
in in finality. That is what everyone's feeling about the the current functioning of the ANC. Yeah, and sometimes I do. I need to be reminded that the post-apartheid government is only as old as I am, and I, I mean it's it's thirty years of budgeting. It it's it's actually not that long to kind of iron out the various difficulties, especially when you have inherited such a broken state. Um, you have been born in '94, you know, on that era. And myself, I'm a decade older than you. I have to remember that how young, and like readers and listeners have to always recognize just how young South Africa's experiment is in this. So 30 years, it doesn't mean there's no return, there's no. So in this question, when we say we lost faith in the government and so on, it's all repair, repairable, right, over time. Maybe, hopefully, in our lifetimes, but it's young. And just what. This is the thirty years of actually a proper functioning South African state, a just state. This is only thirty years of our experiment. So when people hark back to apartheid days and anything else, I just like really want to scream, pull out a word new hair. But but that is almost a it's a it's a fallacy. Pre ninety four is not a real deal. It's something entirely of another creation. This is thirty years. This is our big test of how we move on from it. How we navigate coalition politics if that is the, the new pathway for us going forward but in all truth there's nothing to have a hernia and, and collapse about we are changing and growing and maturing and the ANC has really messed up over the past 15 years we thought I, I used to hate one thing Sarah about why are we so invested in the, the health of the ANC I was like well, the minute and I think slowly we have to break away from that and be invested in the health of the ANC rather being invested in the health of our democracy and our future but when did you stay and uh, wound up in what the ANC's prospects are? Man, you, your head's going to spin. Well, the party itself, I don't think, has dealt with its own eternal revolution and stuff like that. So, but we're young. We're young. As in the age of nations, we're very young as a country. So that's my hope anyway. Yeah, and I, I guess the the hope and the feeling is that we, are, we have kind of reached an inflection point where the citizenry becomes kind of more active in our future. It's not left up to the markets. It's not left up to the ANC only to see the way that we kind of guide the economy forward. But on that kind of more positive note, thank you, Ron, for joining me again. It was great to have you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Listeners, that is it for today's podcast. I hope you will tune in for the next installment of this monthly series. Today's podcast will be released alongside two articles on the Mail and Guardian's website, each contemplating the extent of our current fiscal crisis. Until next month, goodbye and good luck. Thank you for listening to the Mail and Guardian podcast. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you like and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on future episodes. All our podcasts can be found at mg.co.za and our social media platforms at Mail and Guardian. Follow this show under the hashtag TheFiscalCliff. Support our journalism by going to mg.co.za and registering your free account. Please consider subscribing for 99 Rand a month and gain additional member benefits. This will go a long way to ensure that the Mail and Guardian can continue to bring you quality journalism. The Mail and Guardian, Africa's better future.